All right, people, welcome to Going Off Track, coming to you from Rubber Tracks in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. We've always been coming to you from Rubber Tracks in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. We just now realized we can actually talk about it. So Rubber Tracks, an amazing recording studio uh, owned by our good friends at Converse. Uh, They haven't given us shoes yet. Except that they have. We all have tons of <laughs> pairs of shoes by Converse. We're, we actually record next to a closet full of sneakers. Very exciting. Uh, in That's studio, for acoustics, by the way. Yeah, for acoustics because <laughs> the, the canvas of the John Varvatos Chucks absorbs sound like no other. You can actually hear the stick not hitting the snare. It gives the podcast a lot of soul, I think. Damn, there it is. Jonah Bear. Uh, <laughs> Journalist extraordinaire, our audio producer, Brad. Hello. He's here uh, making sure everything sounds glorious. I have to say, I listen to a lot of podcasts and not to toot Brad's horn, which uh, I would never do in public. Our podcast sounds pretty damn good. It does sound good. Sounds very crystal clear because you are, um, what's the term you used? Control freak? (laughs) Among other things, yeah. A while ago, uh, we had just started uh, recording and Brad sent us all an email uh, saying, I just I just put everything in mono, and I think I wrote back. That's awesome. What what does that mean? <laughs> so why is that a big deal? Putting everything in mono. It's just in, there's just no separation between left and right. Which mm. I I went and listened to all the other podcasts, and they don't they're all like that. So if only you could matter. do that to our country brad <laughs> if you could put the united states of america in mono although you know i do archive these in stereo so that if you you know at some point if uh i don't know if we want to put them on npr or something we can give them the stereo version and make it sound even better than what you think it sounds did like you now. hear that npr yeah <laughs> what's up npr have you been following the thing on npr about the the intern emily who wrote about uh, how she's n- bought maybe 10 CDs, yes. and then it turned into this big discourse about the state of the industry. Who was it? David Lowry? David Lowry, yeah. From Cracker and Camper Van Beethoven. He now teaches economics, and yes. he, he wrote a big kind of reaction to it. And then you sent me this thing Travis Morrison wrote. Travis Morrison from Dismemberment Plan wrote another amazing thing about how David Lowry was commenting about how this young girl, Emily's generation, was so ensconced and well, we get music for free. You know, we would share it on Napster and, and we would, I mean, she probably missed Napster. I was, what, 15 years ago? Um, so, 10 years ago. So, she said, well, you know, we'll get a mega upload, things like this. Or Spotify will listen to things. And David Lowry critiqued her saying, well, your generation and people of his generation jumped on. And then Travis Morrison of Dismemberment Plan, great band, uh, he writes saying, you know what? I'm really offended that my generation said her generation is doing this thing that was unheard of then. I've been stealing music for years. I would (laughs) shoplift at these CD stores. We would, my friends and I, we would have a tape club where we couldn't afford the vinyl. So he would buy one, I would buy one, and then we'd trade it with all our friends. Right, right. Or like taping (laughs) stuff off the radio. Taping stuff off the radio. That's completely illegal. Totally, (laughs) totally. Mm -hmm. Like you're not then paying the artist through ASCAP like the radio station was. And then he talked about my favorite thing, college radio. Do you guys work on college radio at all? No, I did a college, worked on a college music video show, but wow, not, not radio. Generations there. We did college radio. It's called Frequency. Yeah, it was. <laughs> um, my college radio station would have, you would have this list of, you, you're supposed to write down what you played. 
And it was an empty clipboard that just sat next to the DJ booth that no one filled in. And it was always tons of CDs that were just being passed around. And all those CDs were just taken and shared and then sold. Yeah. That's what always blew my mind that everyone is clamoring against, you know, the sharing of music and um, uh, so many songs are getting, you know, uh, shared and, and downloaded and artists are not getting compensated. But it's, this has been an issue f- forever. Yeah. I'll go to the library and their CDs, and I'm pretty sure they only bought one, and they're sharing it with everyone. Yeah. So and the labels were sharing those CDs. I remember we had when I had a record contract, it specified they could basically give away as many CDs as they wanted without any compensation, and also that included like all the CDs that they would give away on that Columbia Record Club, remember oh, yeah. yes. the twelve free or whatever it was. Like that was actually in the the record contract. I think. So someone would join uh, Columbia Record House, whatever, mm-hmm. for a penny and get your CD, and get- then they could return it at any time. Well, here's the kicker: is that then what the CDs that they then bought from the Columbia Record House Club, which at, were bloated prices, right? And they were, ma- you know, so they were making extra money on the other. CDs they were selling. Meanwhile, the twelve that they had given away, they did not. They never had to pay any royalties on those. Yeah, and they like manufactured them themselves. Yeah, well, originally I think yeah, yeah the, there, vi- the vinyl back in the days of vinyl they were doing that. There's a really interesting article about that, about kind of that whole thing and how it imploded and what an amazing racket they had going oh, man, for a while. I mean, because no, they they were just. You know, they lock kids into these crazy deals and uh, weren't paying any of the bands I was one of and were making it themselves. Yeah. <laughs> My dad made me send send him back. Really? Yeah. And the funny thing was, he's like, he's like, yeah. My dad gave me, you know, he gave me some whole deal, like speech about, hope you learn your lesson, blah, blah, blah. And, and you could get out of it by mailing him back. You know, you could mail him back the 12 right. yeah. that they sent you. And, I could be wrong, but I almost feel like it was actually my dad's idea. He kind of looked at me and said, you know, they probably don't keep track of which 12 records you actually got. <laughs> kind of wink, wink, like you didn't hear it from me, walked away. So I just, yeah, I went through and pulled out like 12 shitty old records and mailed them back. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> See, that was the, it's like scam upon scam. You know, it's like you're scamming the scammers. My roommate in college would get CDs, take them out, listen to them, tape them. Put the CDs back together with tape, like around the shrink rack, throw them in and write them back. And he wouldn't even put a fucking return address on it. It was amazing. Well, see, this is all perfect segue for our guest today, William Beckett, who forewent the label industry to put out his own records. He's put out uh, EPs. He just put out one in April, and he has a new one out in July right now. It's called Winds Will Change. We encourage all of you to go get it. Uh, William Beckett from Academy Is... A great singer-songwriter, great dude, and uh, he's here in the studio uh, with us talking to Brad, Jonah, and I, and he has on a fantastic T-shirt. He's so tall. Yeah, he's he's freaking (laughs) giant. William Beckett. I want to talk about this amazing shirt you have on. Yeah, I got it from a photographer friend who's working with this photographer um, that is just making these... Prince, so Joan Jett. Joan Jett, two fingers. That's a young Joan Jett. Yeah, double middle finger. And what's the, what's the name of the photographer? I can't read it from here. Um, I actually don't know. Brad Edelman. Oh, yeah, 
Sounds familiar. That's my photography name. It's all you. Hey, Brad Edelman. Yeah, it's Brad. You were just playing dumb, you know. Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, was, I was flattered that you, you wore my shirt. Though. Yeah, you know. That's the theme of the podcast is how long it takes to figure out this is Brad Edelman. <laughs> <laughs> Every week. Did we just break a record, though? Because that was pretty quick. Yeah, that was, that was super amazing. quick. <laughs> the website, is, it's, it's actually just it. when you hit contact us at the bottom of our website, it just goes to all of his photos. I want to have theme music for this point where Jonah introduced the guest. Why do you like me to? I don't know. I just like hearing it. It's just funny because you did it that one time for Norman, and I thought that was really cool. I know, but I feel like you always prompt it, and then it's like super. Or then we don't introduce him. Let's see if people can figure it out. It's William Beckett. Damn, Jonah. (laughs) I was really looking forward to it. Yeah, please. All right, ladies and gentlemen, William Beckett. Yay! Singer, icon. Wow, you pulled the icon out. Yeah, why not? It's really good. Um, it must be a height thing. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, it's like if you're if you're taller than six one and a half, uh, you know, there's there's like a rubric that you've already, you know, accomplished one or two of the the uh, icon requirements. As soon as you're over six one, I get it. But for me, I think I fall short on some of the other required. What, what's the rest of it? Um. Like absolute and utter shameless self promotion. Like I, I, I do a lot hmm. of shameless self promotion, but I'm talking like shameless, shameless, shameless. Like I'm at the coffee shop and I'm like, I'm trying to sell my CD everywhere that I go, mm-hmm. which, I, which, which I don't do, but maybe I should and it would help. You know what? It's, the selling the CD thing is interesting because until I moved to New York, no one ever came up to me on the street to try to sell me a record. Or nor cab driver turned around and said, hey, listen to this music I have on an iPod. I'll give you a good deal on it. Really? New York City, that happened. And I didn't experience it in L.A. Maybe because I lived in a shitty part of town. Well, everyone's kind of too cool for school in L.A. Like, you know. I will say that L.A. was where I first heard about uh, your old band, The Academy Is. I was at the House of Blues for an alternative press event, and Jonah Bear walked by me. And we'd only met like once or twice before. And I went, Jonah, what, what band should I be listening to? And without blinking, he went, the Academy is. Awesome. Thank you, Jonah. You're welcome. He yeah. Was, and he was right. Yeah. I think I, you did one of a, the first interviews that we did with Alternative Press. I did. And, you know, I got in a lot of trouble for that interview. <laughs> I don't know if you, you probably don't even know about this. This is an amazing story, though. You know, <laughs> You guys were on tour with May at the time. Yeah. Um, and I don't know if you remember that story, but there was a line in it where like all these girls kept interrupting to talk to you. And I was like trying to say how that was not kind of normal for this scene. And I said, this is something that doesn't happen to say the bald dude from May. Oh, no. There was that line in it. And he apparently read it and freaked out. And then I was working on Warp Tour and he came up to me that summer. No And was way. like, I was doing a signing. I can't remember who the sign was with. And he came up to me and I didn't recognize him. He was like, are you Jonah? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, oh, hey, I'm the bald dude from May. And I was like, and he was like super pissed. He's like, I can't believe you wrote that, all this really? stuff. Really? Yeah, and I was like, dude, I was like, I wasn't picking on you. I was just, you're the most like recognizable person in that band. Like I just wanted, you know, I didn't want to say like someone from May. I was like, oh, the bald guy. Like, and he was super bummed about it. Really? And I felt horrible and yeah. apologized. And like he said, water under the bridge and we shook hands. And then every time... We would like send an email, like a mass email from AP. May would write back like something like, 
some like something about like marriage that. or something. But well, according to Jonah Bayer, none of us can get chicks or something. I'm like, I never said that. I never oh said my anything. God, wow, um, like really taking it yeah, to heart. Yeah, and I did, I wasn't gonna <laughs> even tell the story, but it's like, dude, if you're gonna shake my hand and say water under the bridge, like let it go. Just like let it be that. Yeah, yeah. let it go. And I'm, I'm apparently dragging this back up. And I'm sure that I don't know what those guys are doing now. But yeah, that's that's what I remember about that story. Our comment board's so crazy. Did you ever get annoyed as as being the tall guy from the academy? Is (laughs) no, actually, super early on, um, you know, because like I grew up in the same area as the Fall Out Boy guys, and we used to play shows together. And once they were going to add um, uh, uh, another guitar player, or they were thinking about having. Patrick just be like a so like like a front man without you know any guitar, and I was doing some acoustic, whiny songs back then and performing locally, and uh, they were thinking about asking me to like be the guitar player, and um, but they ended up not because I'm way too tall, particularly for that band because they're all quite short yeah if you stack human and hurley on top of each other i think you can still dunk I would, over them i would be the weird looking tall guy so you'd be the tall boy the the, the tall the tall out boy <laughs> so you were playing shows in from chicago playing mm-hmm. shows uh doing acoustic stuff the fallout boy when did the band start the band started uh in 2006 i believe i'm so horrible with dates and actually the the day that, um, like the uh, the shock and awe happened in Iraq. Ah, uh, yes. The day that the, that the war started is the was our first rehearsal. Did you have anything to do with shock and awe? I mean, no. <laughs> there was a blizzard in Chicago that day as well, mm. so there was just a lot of crap going on. A lot of, you know, but something as soon as I started of hearing of you guys, you were everywhere, which is great. Because the songs were good and the record was good and, and it was fun to hear. It was, it was a pleasant change to hear a lot of bands that you hear, as they would say in the industry, heat on. You're like, really? And if, blah. No, you have to go interview them. And <laughs> No, I liked interviewing everybody. Um. Yeah, I, I'm curious. I'm, I am curious about uh, almost here because I feel like that record it's, it's really stands up and it's, I, I don't know, it's, it's something really special about that record. I mean, did it feel like when you were making it? Did it feel that way? Or was it like, oh, we're just making a record? As a it band? didn't. I mean, it felt special to us, but it, 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 the recording process was so fast because we were were going out on tour right after that. You know, in classic scene band fashion, rush the recording to get on Warp Tour or something like that. Um, but I think that I mean. We we worked really 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 hard on the pre production and making sure that the songs were different enough but still you know made sense on one record. Um, I don't think that we that we realized that it would end up doing what it did at all. You know, I mean, the fact that it caught fire like it did and it was really organic and natural. I mean, the way that the word spread. Um, yeah, literally at the outside of the House of Blues. That's all I heard. <laughs> it worked out great. And I, I enjoy that when bands get a, a nice buzz and then it's, I don't want to say worthy, but it was worthy. Like it, you could play and then I saw you at Warp Tour and you put on a show, which is always nice to see, especially at Warp Tour when you only have like 30, 35 minutes um, to go out and treat it as if it was arena. And I felt that you did that, especially as a front man. 
And I was particularly taken back by you as a front man because I believe you had on boots. Yeah. Not a lot of people rock that at Warp Tour. No, I mean, dude, I wear, the, I have knee problems big time now from jumping off of amplifiers and speakers in like dress shoes and boots. <laughs> it's like the worst thing ever. Yeah. Like I'll get like the, the Dr. Scholl's, you know, the, the, the pads that I slip in, but I think it was too little too late at that point. So I have like irreparable cartilage damage or something. You get that horrible comparison. Like, oh, did your knees are through. Did your knees get hurt through basketball? No, nah, man. The stupid Marshall stack outside of Fresno was awful. <laughs> yeah. no, I, I used to pretty religiously wear engineer boots. So I was jealous of all the west coast bands and their fucking sneakers on stage like sure they can jump off their amps and <laughs> kick and try putting on a pair of 10 pound boots and doing it then yeah it's like you yeah try that asshole <laughs> try walking in brad edelman's boots yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> i guess we get the title <laughs> brad edelman's boots.com we like having two guests in one podcast <laughs> now he's gonna show up uh, now, you front, were you born and raised in Chicago? I was right. in the, the suburbs, l- uh, a little town called Libertyville. Aha. Uh-huh. Sounds very familiar. Is there a mall there? Yeah, there's a mall in every city. That makes no sense. That was a lousy <laughs> in, question. In the Chicago suburbs, <laughs> that, it's like <laughs> mall central. Like, at, Joan, you know. are there any bars in Brooklyn? I'm not sure. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I only saw like four of them that I've been wasted at on the way over here. And like, this is just off the highway into Brooklyn. So it's like... <laughs> So that being said, did you always have like the musical aspirations? No, um, I've always loved music. Uh, when I was young, it, it was around all the time. My dad would listen to uh, like the '90s grunge stuff a lot in the car. So STP and Pearl Jam was like the first song that I ever sang in front of people was an acapella version of "Don't Call Me Daughter," <laughs> and I was like eight years old. At day camp, after school club. Some people thought you were having like a gender crisis or something. I maybe that's what they thought, but I, I I feel like I was always I was always pretty sure that you know male is what I was and wanted to be. You you were eight when you were singing the Pearl Jam song. Yeah, eight. the sound you hear now is mine and Brad's pain <laughs> snapping. Yeah, we were, we had that we're, discussion. Yeah, we were, were just talking about. I interviewed a band yesterday, and they were eighteen. So they're born in the nineties. They were born like when Nirvana was breaking up, and they were they were really influenced by them. They're like, yeah, we just grew up like it was always playing around the house. Like Nirvana, our parents listened to him, and it made me feel so old and weird. Like because <laughs> I feel like it was like a weird like boundary that had been crossed. Like I feel like between me, I felt like my parents or something. Yeah, yeah, it's it's so weird. I mean. It shows and, you know, it's like you said, you know, even a lot of bands now, it's like, like they're 18, 19 years old and they were born in like, like 93 or whatever. And it's like, it's just pretty crazy. But um, then, so be- between the grunge stuff that my dad was listening to and my mom was really into 80s pop, um, which I think both were pretty influential just almost in like a subconscious way yeah that Uh, makes sense with your sound what kind of 80s pop like duran duran and uh new order 
Thompson Twins. Dude, you can't go The Outfield. With, dude, The Outfield, please. <laughs> Lose Your Love is one of the most perfect pop songs ever written. Amazing. He's got a hell of a voice, man. I oh, mean, yeah. when you start a song that high, I mean, the, 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 you know, it's like uh, along those lines, it's, it's like my, my worst nightmare, and I have nightmares about singing the national anthem and starting the song too high because like of where it ends up and you don't want to be like a man singing falsetto you know national <laughs> anthem sporting man, yeah. <laughs> Rockets, Franklin, <laughs> you know it's just like who's the wimp <laughs> get yeah. the wimp off the field yeah you definitely you definitely won't be allowed to stay for the game after that you don't have to go home <laughs> <laughs> under security uh, yeah. right <laughs> yeah pretty bad um but uh, early on, I mean, I was just really into sports, actually. I was a sports guy, so baseball and basketball. And there was a time when I got really obsessed with golf. And then there, and there was a time when I was really obsessed with pro wrestling. And those were interesting times. I, I organized, Some of us, they've never ended with. <laughs> right. Well, it's in my, my, uh, my soul. It's in my blood. So the other night, um, it was a day off, and we were in Jersey. We're at the hotel. Um, I was in the room with my tour manager, and he was about to go to sleep. And then I got a phone call, so I was like, "Okay, I'm gonna go outside." Because when I'm on the phone, I have to pace. I have to walk, and like I'll end up like a mile and a half down the road or something. I, I know that guy. Yeah. <laughs> so that's what I uh, did, and like it was a long, long phone call. I was like, you know, sometimes you just got to do what you got to do, right? Uh, so it was like two hours later, and. I don't know this, but he's been trying to call me for like an hour and a half, a dozen missed calls, which I don't see or hear. Uh, like I saw once the phone was away from my face and I was like, oh shit, like what is going on? I end up uh, back at the hotel and he's in the lobby with two cops, like two state cops. And I'm like, oh fuck, like what? what's up with this? So... I go in there and I just see like like this this terror on my tour manager's face turn to like complete and utter relief when he sees me and he's like, Oh my god, man, like where have you been? I'm like, but on the phone, I'm like pacing around. He's like, dude, I've been looking for you everywhere. I, I, he called the cops to file a missing persons report. <laughs> okay. Which they, which he was like right in the middle of doing with the cops there. And apparently he looked everywhere. Like he looked in the van. He looked like up and down the streets and couldn't find me. He looked in a fucking dumpster. He looked in a dumpster. Have that, you been known to fall into them or hide? No, he just thought that like maybe I got, you know, stuck in an alley and like dismembered and thrown into a, a dumpster. Like he thought, like he looked in dumpsters. Okay. <laughs> like thinking there's a chance that you could that be I, there. That I could yeah. be in there. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> and then bathroom, the, lobby, fan, dumpster. Dumpster. <laughs> but, but the real crazy thing was the, what the cops said to him. The first thing that the cops said after he's like, yeah, man, you know, I've been looking for him forever. He's not answering his phone. I'm really, I'm really panicking. Um, and they were like, well, this area in this hotel particularly has very high traffic in sexual uh, prostitution and uh, <laughs> and uh, solicitation. And they're like, 
Are you sure that maybe he's not in one of these hotel rooms? With a, <laughs> one of these other hotel rooms? And he's like, well, no, never say never, but I don't think so, man. Like, no, no, I don't, I don't think so. But it just it, it blew my mind that that in Jersey, that would be the, the first thing that they would say. Like the first, like the first idea. Jersey. Well, he's probably with a prostitute. <laughs> we would be if we didn't have to work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think so, that's awesome that he tried to file a missing persons report. When don't you have to wait twenty four hours before filing a missing persons uh, or three days? There's some statute. Not in Jersey. Forty five minutes. <laughs> yeah, I mean he 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 was panicking. He's in there playing video games now. So right on. <laughs> 45 minutes. My God, he's gone. <laughs> Jersey. We're going to walk out there. There's going to be a couple cops out there. He's either, <laughs> he's either kidnapped or with a hooker. Those are your only two options in Jersey. <laughs> when I'm in Chicago, actually, I mean, I'm, I'm just like, I'm just home. Right. I'm just watching Netflix and chilling with my daughter, you know. Right on. How old's your daughter? She's four. Boy, that was a, an adorable picture that I'll turn to. Oh, about. thanks, man. Yeah. That she's really great. She's great. She's fantastic. Four. Yeah, Brad, I don't know I about a Brad. Four-year-old daughter. Yeah, I was gonna say. Really, it's pretty awesome age. Yeah, it's amazing. I, I miss her so much. It's crazy. We do Facetime, but you know, when we do Facetime, she just wants to see what I'm looking at because yeah. you, you know how you can, uh, yeah, the camera it. flips, yeah. and she's like, "Show me what you're looking at. What is it?" Because the first few times, I think one time I was at like a a, a Japanese restaurant, and there was all this like really interesting decor around. So. I, uh, you know, I showed her stuff, and like now, every single time, I'm just like, "Sweetie, I'm actually like in an alley, and it's <laughs> and there's and you literally don't want to see what's on the other side of this camera. <laughs> it's like some s- some dude pissing, you know, <laughs> against the wall. Which I have a crazy story about a dude pissing on this tour. Shoot! So we were driving. To the venue, it was probably like two thirty in the Segway afternoon. From my four year old daughter, daughter too. <laughs> I miss her so much. All right, dude. Oh, by the way, public pissing. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, if you have a child, you know, there's that moment that's like I have to it's go. It's not back. that far off. It's yeah. really not. <laughs> it's not. I mean, like she would like she knows not to ever do this, you know. So <laughs> so it's fine. You know, she knows better than this dude did. But broad daylight, you know, like lunch. A traffic rush happening and it, it was in Ohio and uh, outside of a Pizza Hut slash Taco Bell combo. Um, Next to the Dunkin' Donuts, Baskin Robbins? Uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure that, that it was, <laughs> but but I was, you know, what I saw was so spellbinding and, and, and uh, hypnotic. It, it was just fucking crazy. So standing out front... Um, of the building like facing the street dude pissing pissing (laughs) and no hands either (laughs) yes through the zipper (laughs) button fastened wait just kind of (laughs) like you know what i'm saying like was he trying to appear cash like he wasn't no no urinating no no that's the thing he was facing the street like i like i've seen daytime you know, public pissing a lot. I mean, I've been one of them before, you know, but, but it's always like often like, yeah. like, a, you know, like a crevice behind the building, you know, like behind a dumpster, something like that. This guy cut out the middle, man. Oh yeah, he certainly did. And he didn't care. Like he had no, no inhibition whatsoever. 
and like you know i mean i really hope this guy isn't homeless that he was just like a financial worker that just he, needed a break he he uh, I, I don't know I, I i couldn't tell you know then it could have it's been probably either. just a hipster yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the no hands thing that that is no always hands. fascinating yeah. yeah i mean he's like stretching out like you I, know i have to say that i i've actually done that public when trying to be discreet and not, but i didn't face face traffic yeah I'm, i was like you know maybe standing in a park or something over by the tree like checking my phone <laughs> <sighs> not taking a leak yeah see all i would do then is pee down the front of my pants well you, you gotta you gotta set it up you gotta set it up do you hear what i'm saying <laughs> <laughs> Get me there. A, <laughs> There's no pride here. Trying to help you out. <laughs> Nothing's gonna happen. There'd be no setup. It'd be like, oh god. For you, for me to do it, it would have to be old school little kid where I'd have to pull pants and underwear down around my ankles, stand there with my hands on my waist and arch back. That would be not discreet, <laughs> but it would be awesome. That would be awesome. And I had just seen a um, a glorious show that night before um, Saint Vincent. Oh yeah, played and it was amazing. So I don't think that anything could have could have bummed me out after seeing her. <laughs> so I was wrong because I was <laughs> I was bummed. I was I was shocked by what I saw. It's a sad state of being. Yeah. All right, so we went from from wrestling. So how do we go from wrestling to more sports than music? Or just, no? How'd you get out we, of sports? We were taught. Yeah, out of sports. My, uh, my family moved uh, before my sophomore year, and I played. Uh, baseball and um, all this talk about me, you know, with uh, the football team as well. They wanted to like get me on like a weight training thing and like wanted me to play football, which is totally random now. And uh, it would have changed everything, you know, I think. But uh, we we moved to um, this like rival school uh, where the school system was a bit better and houses cost like four times as much money, but, but my stepdad wanted to move us there. So we did. And, uh, I was super bummed. I was not happy and I was disgruntled. My, my teen punk phase was just hitting, you know, it's peak. Who, so who, who are your bands? Who are the, who are the bands? Like, like Lawrence Arms, uh, Alkaline Trio, the Ataris, you know, I was like, uh, um, a bunch of my friends would skateboard, but I was way too, just my center of gravity is yeah. too high. <laughs> so even though Tony Hawk's tall and, and, yeah. and, and he's, you know, the shit, but I, I, I opted for, uh, the inline skates, the, Smart. the, the aggro <laughs> inline skates. And I was the only one out of all my friends that chose to do that instead <laughs> Uh, like I couldn't even find a friend that was willing to do rollerblades. I just couldn't find wow. a single friend. They do were just like, still do those? Yeah, I actually yeah. saw um, in Toronto there were a ton of them, like more than skateboards. Which blade punks they call them? Blade punks, <laughs> blades of glory. I just started a whole new trend. I like how you threw out Lawrence Arms. That's a band that I always forget about, and then when I listen to them, I realize how much I love this band. Yeah, it's really really great. You know, raw energy, good lyric, like really good lyrics, yeah. actually. And uh, you see them at the fireside in Chicago all the time. And uh, um, so between that and then Dashboard, uh, uh, 
when I heard Dash, but for the first time, it changed my life. Like absolutely changed everything. I was like, what the hell is this? This is incredible. So I bought an acoustic guitar and started writing songs after that. And then I quit sports. I, I actually took my baseball socks and I wrote a bunch of lyrics on it. I, I, uh, I actually wrote a dashboard lyric on my socks. Did you mail them to Chris? No, I've actually never met Chris. Really? Yeah, but I hear he's a great dude. And uh, I wrote, so kiss me hard because this will be the last time. See, it's so beautiful that I can't even say it. (laughs) This will be the last time that I let you on my socks, on my baseball socks. And all of my baseball friends, all my jock friends were like, you fucking weirdo, man, you (laughs) faggot. You know, and then I be, and then I became the fag overnight, which was awesome. And in your new school, and my new school, and there was a kid named Josh Santiago who went by the name Santi, who like f- tried to make my life a living hell, like uh, rumors. I had, I had one of those guys, just a shithead. You know, if only there was a way to get back at that dude. Yeah, like name my second record after him, yeah. and I mean, since he's he's added me on Facebook, oh. <laughs> you know, he's he's apologized, you know. But once you come out with a record named after the guy that <laughs> fucked with you, yeah, he's probably going to apologize. Yeah. He was stoked, man. Yeah, I'm sure he was probably excited. He says some weird homage or something. Oh, man, dude, I'm glad like, I fucked with that dude. <laughs> actually, actually, I heard from some fans like randomly years ago that they ran into the real Santi and he was like in a record store and he was like just, you know, just so happened to be standing by where the Academy is records are. And then uh, this girl walked up and she was looking at the records and she pulled out the Santi record. And uh, he's like, Hey, uh, I bet you didn't know that, but uh, that's me. (laughs) They named that after me. I'm the real Santi. Took a picture. He asked her if she wanted a picture. So she's like, okay. Then I took a picture and she sent it to me on Twitter. It was super funny. Uh, he made him more pathetic than he was. Yeah, but actually I I ran into him since and he's getting married. Either way, I mean, you know, you do stupid shit when you're in high school and I don't hold any grudges anymore. It's interesting about Santi. I, you know, I talked to Mike about the record a lot when it came out and you I felt like I read like 800 stories about you guys <laughs> but I said at one point to Mike um, that I felt that record was your Pinkerton sort of in a way because I was like it's so not what people expected and I felt like maybe not everyone got it but I feel like it might be a record where later people are like wow this is an interesting kind of left turn it's actually I don't know if, to me that record still is I like it like and I like that it, you didn't just make a super pop record after the first record I guess yeah um Thanks. Uh, I've seen since then that it's it's a lot of, it's a lot of people's f- um, number one record. Like when I you know see kids at shows and stuff like that, or just you know, it's it's kind of interesting. I do feel like like we were kind of onto something, and then um, when it didn't do what everyone expected it to do with the label and everything, I think that kind of went into like a panic mode and hit reset and kind of made a record that was more conducive to almost here but do you feel like that was a going from taking such a left turn and then as you say resetting do you feel like the reset was a step back for you i don't um i think as as writers and definitely as performers we've improved you know we improved a lot um and uh 
conceptually, it was the most focused record of that we made. You know, it was our third record, just really inspired by John Hughes films and high school films that when they were uh, still good. And uh, and um, John Hughes, he's from Chicago, yeah. Illinois. Yeah. The the fake town of Shermer, Illinois. Yeah, I Shermer. believe is where all the all the yeah the stories took place. Actually, uh, um, this house that um, I bought and then couldn't afford anymore soon after was uh, like down the street from where he shot the Ferris Bueller stuff, and um, the Home Alone house was just like a um, a, uh, a few blocks away as well. How'd you get introduced to those kind of things? Because, you know, as you said, you, you know, first song you sang was Pearl Jam as a young one, but like John Hughes has stopped making movies by then. And he'd, yeah. only, he'd only done like a couple of Home Alone and then he just, he jammed. Yeah. And he, I mean, he didn't even direct the Home Alone movies. I think he just wrote and produced them. But uh, for me, I mean, I'm just, a, I'm a huge movie fan. And once, once we started touring, I just like, there was so much time to watch movies in Walmart, $5 bin, you know, at like three in the morning and just like go through everything. Like I'm a big fan of that movie Heathers, which isn't John Hughes, but oh, that movie's amazing. The, the movie Heathers is, is badass. And like, um, I just really got into the genre, just really got into it, particularly at that point. And what was really cool that I, um, that I heard about, uh, was, um, uh, the Cameron Crowe, um uh he he went back to high school um uh for uh um days to confused no not days to confused cuz that's times. richard linklater richard but richard days to confused uh, uh Cameron Crowe wrote fast times fast times yep. yeah totally that's it he went back to school f- f- like as a student you know, like he's probably still in disguise. I think I heard that story. Yeah. He's probably like in, disguise. in his early 20s, probably just looked just like it. Yeah. You know? And he just like wrote, you know, what he saw in the classroom. And like, um, I wanted to do that at Barrington, which was the school that I went to and what the name <laughs> of the album was. And we like called and like tried to get it set up. I was like, I was gonna do like a, a haircut and like, like, <laughs> like, like wear baggies and stuff like that. <laughs> And like just kind of fit in, um, but apparently in real life you can't do that kind of thing because they're <laughs> like, on. Um, I mean, maybe he could sit in on like a class, but no way could we, he be like fake enrollment and like <laughs> I want to get like a class schedule and like see like see how it was like you know four years after I graduated like how much had changed and uh, unfortunately we weren't able to do that. <laughs> It would, been, it would have been a good story. They'd have, been, they'd have eyeballed you as a narc in a second. <laughs> yeah. Do like, not talk to him. <laughs> <laughs> he looks like that dude in the academy. No, no, it can't be. Not at all. Back to school? Obviously not. Wow. When you write, because it, it surprises me that I've never heard you talk about movies. You're such a movie fan, but now thinking about all your lyrics, they do have a very cinematic quality to them. Does, was that on purpose or do you think it just kind of came out of... Well, you as a film buff, I think that, well, what I do when I write a lot of times is is I'll put on a film, I'll, you know, and I'll have it on mute and just have it on during my, my writing sessions. Um, there's this movie called the fall, 
which is like extremely visual and, 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 and really beautiful and dreamlike and whimsical. And I've been watching that a lot lately while I write. Um, for me to, to like have a visual and, you know, see the contrast of like how a, a shot is framed and like the movement and, and, and all that stuff is, is really inspiring in, in a, a way where I can de- describe um, you know the scene and there's more weight on the description as opposed to like if I listen to um, a, you know a song or read some poetry it's already been written and it's already been performed that way you know what I mean so it's like I'll often find myself like oh fuck that's a great line but it's already a line so oh, when I'm pulling from a different medium, I find uh, um, uh, I come across more interesting things that are more unique ways to to set up a scene. See, you even say set up a scene. See, I like that. That makes sense to me. Because I, I find writing songs to be, I don't know, what were you going to say? No, you go ahead. I was just saying writing songs, like it's just so fascinating to be able to put... No, it sounds dumb, but to put words and music together and have everybody like it blows my mind. Because I, as, as a, as, as a, as an, uh, to, to borrow from High Fidelity, as someone Chicago, um, yeah. originally London. Why do I do that? Why do I define everything? I love it. <laughs> as as an, a, a professional appreciator of things, you know, like I like to read, I like to listen. But if I sit down and try and do anything, it ends with a hole in a wall or frustration or yelling or, oh, shit, Archer's on? Fuck, you know, and like <laughs> that, like I'll find everything possible to avoid doing it. So to people who can sit down and do that. But I know that for you to sit down and write a song, it's work. You know, it's a hard thing to do. So you're just, you just are better than me. Um, it's, it's, uh, Yeah. <laughs> there have been holes in walls. I've I've put holes in walls before really? during sessions. Are there, are there songs that you've been working on forever that you just haven't finished that just because you want it to be a certain way? No, not not recently. I mean, for a long time, that's that was kind of how it felt. And writing um, in the band for a while, kind of. I mean, for us, we we were writing a lot for the fourth record. You know, and it was going to be Atlantic again and everything and. The first few sessions that we had, we were going for something like really different and pretty ambitious. It was kind of like a new wave revival where we were using a lot of synth and, and, and like it was very pop, which is actually what's happening now, ironically, you know, <laughs> that like, like if they would have been like, fuck yeah, then we could have been kind of on the, the cusp of, of this new movement that's happening. Mm-hmm. But um, it, we did not get good feedback at all mm. so so we kind of had to start over and you know i think that emotionally and physically it just took a lot out of us and i think that that was part of uh and then from there the vision was really clouded and couldn't really decide on one thing so i think that that that, that was kind of a contributing factor but now um i really try and and uh and like get into a mind frame of of positivity and uh, a session should be fun. And when you're writing songs um, to not stifle an idea b- before you have a chance to see it bloom, you know, cause that would happen a lot where I'd have an idea for a song. And it's like, nah, I don't know. Like, nah. 
And then it's like, okay, but we haven't even tried it yet. Um, but working on my own and working with producers and like writers that I like, um, it's, it really comes from a natural spot where I can just, you know, follow my instincts and commit the whole way as opposed to being like in the middle, you know, like right in the middle of things. And then once you've compromised on this, that, and the other thing, the song kind of loses its individuality. So for me, I'm just... There's few democracies that you can write great songs in, I think. You know, right. Like there's been a few bands in history that could do that, what you're talking about, but... Lennon McCartney For the most good. part. Yeah, but those two were kind of, you know, that they were the only two and yep. they were dictators. And, yeah, and a lot of times it, it was like, you have your songs, I have my songs. Yeah. And like, you know, you know, that it was very, very, I mean, it was, you know, super competitive and like, and obviously that they didn't last a long time yeah. together, <laughs> but they that. did amazing work. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I feel like Mike, I mean, I'm not going to compare Mike and I to, to, you know, Lennon and McCartney, but like our relationship was a lot like that. And, and once, uh, just, it's hard to sustain something so, so intense for so long. Yeah. It's difficult. Now, do you think that trying to sustain that and is what, you know, led, led to the band stopping or had you kind of wanted to shift on your own or were you going to try and do both? I wanted to, I think that for a while I, my heart was in starting over and doing something on my own, but like my loyalty and like fear kind of kept me, um, kept me fighting to keep it together. Um, but you know, it came a time when I just had to, you know, for lack of a better word, shit or get off the pot. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I felt like it was time to get off the pot. Right on. <laughs> now, uh, as soon as you started releasing uh, your new stuff, you know, iTunes was all a buzz and a flame. It was good. And uh, what's the new record? Walk the Talk is That's the EP. Correct. And then I have a second EP coming out in July and then a third EP coming out in October. And then when it's all said and done, um, it'll be 12 songs altogether that once you collect everything, you have the full story. See, I love EPs. I just wish bands would put out EPs. I like it so much better. You know, getting, you know, a couple, you know, literally what you're doing is what I enjoy. A couple times a year, put out a couple of songs and, because I'll play an EP to death. It's going that way. I'm seeing it more and more. I mean, you know, it seems like. Like I've, I've, I've had, I told Fat Mike, stop putting out records, just put out EPs. Yeah. Almost had him too. He's the old guard. <laughs> Believe it or not, Fat Mike is the old guard. Sorry, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so now you're putting it out and uh, who is putting it out? Is it just all you? I'm self-releasing everything. Good for you. Yeah. And how's it going? Great. I mean, it's like a you're lot being your own work. boss. Yeah, you're being, yeah. It's a lot of work, a lot more than I ever expected. But I think that I've, I, I've learned from what I neglected in my band and like what I relied on others for. I think I took it for granted a bit, um, but it's 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 been uh, it's been great since I have a lot of you know I have the full control. I have an entire new team as well, so like my management and my booking and everything else, it's all a fresh perspective. And I hired a publicist that is really amazing. So um, yeah, it's 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 exhausting, but it's 
I'm I'm in love with it. And if I can, you know, I've I've done it before with my band where we built something from the ground up and and let it be its own thing. And that's that's what I'm focusing on for this um, to let it be organic and and uh, let the music, you know, really speak for itself. Is it daunting to go from in a band, hey, I want to do my own stuff to, oh shit, now I'm doing my own, now it's all me? No, it's exciting. Good. I mean, for so long I was waiting, you know, it was just like, there's all this talk and talk and talk and talk about, you know, concept and marketing and like, you know, where where I fit and this and that, especially after going solo, because the, the label was super stoked on it first and um, really loved all the songs. It still loves the songs, you know, um, which is interesting. But, did, you know, I feel like there was so much freedom in starting over again that, like, you know, to keep it too much like the Academy is or to go too far away, like, no one really knew what to do. Um, when all along it was like, just let me do my thing, let me be myself. That's what got me this far. So that's what I, uh, that's the, the, the the decision I made. You literally ultimately decided to not go with the label. Well, I mean, it was, it, it came to a point where it was like, listen, I have these songs and like, we, we all love these songs. Like, let's put them out. Like, let's, let's make the record now or, you know, let's not make the record now. Like, well, what's it going to be? And then a new year came around and, you know, I think that, some cuts were made there for some reason or another, uh, usually bottom line stuff. And um, I don't know if they really knew how to sell me to, to the public. So Again, I really want to hear a different story. We've So many people we've talked to, I mean, podcast, professionally, whatever, it always ends up as something like that. It's nothing to do with the band, nothing to do with anything. It's, um, yeah, our craft services budget, we had to cut it and your red line was next to it. What the fuck? Like it never. Yeah, but there's a positive side to this. It's that 15 years ago, that was it. Yeah. You were screwed. Now yeah. you can take your career in your own hands and be hugely successful. I love that. Probably make more money. You yeah, because so you're like, playing, you have your audience and your people. Yeah. Yeah. So the record company's still playing the same game, but, you know, finally artists have power. So. Yeah. And, you know, even, you know, and I have not, really nothing against that label at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I totally get what it was and I'm actually happy a lot a lot happier that it went this way so that I can truly cultivate exactly the way I want to on my own terms and without any like you know uh, outside interference Um, but at the same time it's like you see what's happening in popular music changing right now you know with like the Gautier stuff and like how Kimbra's about to blow up and like these fucking amazing artists that, I mean, to me, it's, it's kind of a no brainer though, because it was so huge in Australia. That song was huge in Australia for like eight months and it was like number one that whole time. And it's kind of like a no brainer that it would, it, that it would work over here. Um, but it's, it's, it's refreshing to hear. And I think that labels just didn't see it coming it's really refreshing to hear something so so unique and uh and and um in a lot of ways that voice is is kind of a throwback to like what what what, what was happening in the 80s it's peter gabriel it's what peter you're getting gabriel. at and when he 
typifies the business model you're talking about because even though he was on a major, he was one of those guys that even in Genesis was like, you know what, I'm going to go this way. Right. And even Genesis was like, well, you're going to do that in your own. He's like, okay, fine. And then he releases <laughs> all these amazing, like there's not a bad solo Peter Gabriel right. record. They're all good. Then he's like, you know what, I'm going to start my own label. Then I'm going to do a fucking tour. You remember that, the Womad yeah, tour? Yeah. And I'm going to put foreign artists together. And then I'm going to include Midnight Oil. Oh, and this up-and-coming band live. I think we're going to hear good things from them and put that together. And so, of course, <clears throat> Gautier is going to do well. And I'm thrilled. I love the tune and I love the other tunes he comes, he's, he's doing. I think that's great. I was having this conversation with someone who worked a label uh, recently I want to have on who said he's fighting with his label because they keep talking about like terrestrial radio and things. And he went, I thought... I was brought in to not do this, to do, to, can't we avoid this? I don't, it doesn't seem like we need it anymore. Well, radio, I mean, dude, in Chicago, there isn't a rock station anymore. So it's like, we're talking about making a modern rock record, you know, like five months ago. It's like in my home city, there is not a rock station anymore. It was Q101 for years. And now they went to um, like an internet, you know, kind of platform. Did the same thing here with K-Rock in New York. Yeah, and it's like, so there's nowhere to even put your rock music. So it's like the fact that I want to make a little bit more, you know, like pop sounding stuff should be conducive to like what is naturally happening, not trying to force a modern rock record when there's no station in my own hometown right. to play it, <laughs> you know. So it, it's just just kind of boggles my mind. But, um, you know, they'll, they'll have to figure it out, like that they'll have to adapt or die, you know. Well, I was um, I was talking to a friend who manages bands the other day, and she was talking about her band doing a video, and I was like, "That to me is like the craziest thing." I was like, "It's so expensive," and I was like, "No one shows them on TV," and she's like, "Yeah, we put it on the website, but it's like, so someone's gonna watch it on like a two inch screen on their phone, and they're gonna spend like fifty grand on it." Like, I don't. Well, but the thing is, now you don't have to spend that. Money. Well, exactly. I just uh, I shot a video with my friends for free. Really? Uh, that that's coming out like next week. So we're going to obviously like where to play it, you know, and everything. But we're like messing with, with, you know, different formats and like the in-store stuff. Cause a lot of stores are doing like, you know, videos, um, you know, in their store on the TV and stuff like that. But like, I just basically got like my creative friends together. We had drinks one night and like conceptualized the, this video shot it, that next week and it looks like we spent fucking 50 grand on it and yeah, that's didn't, amazing. you know so it's like there's ways you know you, yeah. you you just have to like for me it's it's like instead of relying on the, and like we, we don't need the craft service and like the catering and then like mm-hmm. the 18 people doing makeup and hair it's like it's a waste of money it's right. wasteful and there's and, and, and there's nothing that i've learned more than like now it's like like every you know penny I'm like accounting for and like making sure that like, you know, that I know where all the money is, that I realize how much money was wasted yeah. for so long and like oh, huge God. budgets wasted. Like I, I was, I was always amazed at how much money was wasted on single CDs, promotional sent to, uh, you know, MTV and fuse and labels and stuff. Cause what always blew my mind was that's the band just paid for you to have that. Yeah. Like that's their money, but you know, as young bands don't realize that because they don't, they you know, blow the advance. They don't understand. Like you're saying, you're learning now, and they learn following it. So, yeah, that's phenomenal. You realize how much crap was just blown away, and then it just kind of makes you angry at what could have been done. Sure, with all that money. Sure, man, totally. But at the, you know, 
at the same time, it's like you, you can tell someone to like, oh, don't do it this way, don't do it that way. But you, you have to make your own mistakes and learn from your own mistakes the hard way. I feel like when, when it comes down to it, I mean, me anyway, it's like all the advice in the world, I don't think would have or could have changed what path it, you know, everything was on and just like, well, the kind of lifestyle that, that you know, we were used to and like, you know, just being stupid kids thinking that it would never end, you know, and then. Well, you guys were super young when it happened, but I don't remember, you know, there are young bands you hear stories about, you know, burning them the candle at both ends and going crazy. I don't recall Academy is that way or hearing stories about it. You guys had to put on a good live show. You had your own, you know, you partied, you did your thing. Yeah. I recall an instance in, I believe, Florida. On Warp Tour? Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right. And then, yeah, it was your interview the next day. <laughs> yeah, it was, a, it was, this is a fun story. Um, it was, uh, cause I was there. It was the night before, and I ran into uh, our good friend JR, also known as Pete <laughs> from Less Than Jake. And, uh, he had, he was like, we're all gonna shotgun beers. And I went, all right. And then I watched him do it, and I noticed that he spit half of it out. So uh. I didn't think that was fair. Um, <laughs> he just kind of drooled. But out of the corner of my eye, I see a, 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 a long man being carried limply onto a bus. That was me. And Pete said... I, dude, I actually, that night, I, I puked in my pillowcase. Didn't know until then. I, I mean, I was blacked out. I was totally blacked out. And it was like 6 p.m. Yeesh. <laughs> we drank an entire bottle of Jack Daniels. That'll do it. Amongst... Between the two of us, we, we like went on on the No Effects bus and like I fucking never met those guys before and like they were super nice. I was like, whoa! I thought you'd hate like the fucking emo kid that's wasted right now. But <laughs> but, but they were really cool. And that's like, the greatest thing for them. A drunk guy walked in right on. <laughs> yeah, and then uh, yeah, it was it was pretty embarrassing. You know, it's it's pretty embarrassing. I mean wasn't embarrassing it was it was it's a badge of honor because what happened i don't know if you remember this the next day where we did the interview the thing to be embarrassed about was you saying oh yeah i'm just i'm not feeling well today for me to go i saw you drinking with pete dude i know why you're not feeling well. oh yeah yeah like trying to play it off like yeah i don't know it's like a maybe it's like a stomach virus or you know it's like i was kind of restless last night yeah dude I saw. <laughs> I think I might have said badge of honor then. I said, yeah, be proud of that shit. But then we were, it was like, uh, where the fuck was it? Jacksonville or somewhere, somewhere weird in Florida. Where there was like canals by the yeah. area. And uh, it was you guys. Then I think census fail. And all of a sudden, as we're doing the interview, just the school of dolphins is swimming through the canals. Everything stopped. Everyone's like, the fuck? Oh. Nobody in Florida blinked. They're like, yeah, whatever, dolphins. Like, no, this is awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It was a beautiful yeah. moment. Then a unicorn showed up. Magic moment. I just had negative associations with Florida and Warp Tour. I felt like those shows were like, oh, they're all on those weird racetracks. I felt yeah. like back then, I don't think it's like that anymore. I don't no, know. No, now it's, they're in the parking lots outside the racetracks. Yeah, tracks. I guess so. They used to be in the fucking racetracks, not anymore. Yeah. <laughs> Ugh, that was brutal. Oh, man. But anyway, that was a very funny story. Yeah, it was. Well, uh, Pete will do that. He's a good guy. Pete's amazing, and like since then we've had nights like that. Like just my, I think at that point in my life I wasn't really eating either. So like, you don't look like you're eating now, dude. Between you and I'm Jonah, that's seventy pounds. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know. I, um, I actually got really into this workout program called Insanity mm. for a minute, or for like two months. I've heard of that. Is it? Is that the one? Do you change it up like every day? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. It's different every day. And the second month is like a max month. And so it's like really, it's like really, really crazy. And I finished that. And I've just been like more conscious of like my diet. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm 27 now. So I'm just like trying to keep it together. <laughs> that is when the metabolism will stop. So that's smart. Yeah. So I'm you just trying might to stay gain healthy. a fucking pound. <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to stay healthy. Um, you know, yeah. 27. 27. Sickening. <laughs> if something crazy happened. I remember 27 like I was broke. Wait. Yeah. I was. <laughs> yeah. I was. <laughs> so wait, 27. So uh, you see, you're a very young dad. Yeah. Right on. Yeah. That's very common with most of my friends. Because like I'm 40 now, but my friends' kids are like 13, 14. You know, they're all. Yeah. They'd, you know, that was, that was like a very... 20s was the place to have it done yeah i mean it, it wasn't planned but um it's been amazing you know some things turn out have that a way. cool a cool family right on yeah i'm so off because steven's is one of my first friends that had kids and i'm so off with the timeline like i'm like can they walk by the time they're six like, <laughs> they, like i'm like do they talk at one or like 11 like i like have no idea when stuff happens yeah. but dude now it's even crazier because you know it's like when when like when are when is the the cell phone going to be asked for totally. and like the iPod like what's going to happen like my daughter's amazing at my iPhone like she knows she's like can we please no actually what she does now is she just looks at me with my phone you know after she's like gone through and like updated her like farm you know and then one of those games and like the fashion story she like makes sure that like everything is 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 working out and then she's she just looks at me and she's like, do you know what I'm thinking? <laughs> and I'm like, Evie, we're not, we're, we're not doing the app store today. We're just not doing the app store. And then she's like, do you know what I'm thinking? <laughs> she's like, how about the free ones? So we look at the free ones. And I'm like, none of these are good. Like, all these are weird and, and we're not going to do these. So I make her play the ones that we've already decided on you know i had to draw the line on the app store sometimes dude that's such a that, that statement right there like is unfathomable <laughs> to me like i literally feel like my my parents you know who were like you know three channels but mostly the radio like that's <laughs> you know that's what we listen to johnny dollar like that's how we figure it out and you know our kids are going to they already have in their head what we thought about as I can't wait till flying cars. We don't have flying cars, but we can look at each other on our phone in real time. My wife does it with the girls all the time at work, and that's that's part of their existence. It's not this scary, disassociative, I don't understand tactile feelings. I can't hug my mom. Yeah. You can do both. They know that's her there. And when the phone rings, they get excited. Yeah. They know that that's what's going to happen, and it's now part of their lives. And I was just thinking... You know, you're talking about, I had this brief moment of, oh, they're just playing with apps. Like, they don't have anything tangible like toys and stuff. But it's still your imagination. You're still thinking and remembering yeah, it and, and putting things together. Yeah, and she's actually, uh, the, uh, the uh, uh, like, the, the small motor stuff, you know? So, you know, like, when she was, like, two, using the phone stuff, like, like really enhanced all that and like she's learned uh spanish and french words she knows how to count in like all three of those languages and and like it's you know i think that when used uh appropriately it could be a pretty good 
teaching tool. Like we still do, you know, um, like, you know, playing with real toys and and like, you know, building things and, you know, puzzles and she draws all the time. She's really, really hilarious. The storyteller too. So like she'll tell us a story and we'll write it down. But first she'll, uh, she'll like, um, draw, uh, a story out. So each page will have like a scene and then the next page will have like, like, uh, you know, like the development of what's happening and then she'll tell the story afterwards and we make these books and she's done like six of them. So they're really cute. Yeah. Awesome. Does, she, does she know dad's a professional musician? Yeah. Does she, is there any kind of, I mean, it's so fascinating to like, you know, if you, you always think of, you know, like Paul McCartney's kids, they know that their dad's a Beatle, you know, like of course they do, but they just think dad's going to work. Yeah. You know, that's it. You know, and she knows what I do. And, um, um, I, I play these shows on stageit.com, which is like it, they host shows on the internet. So I can play and, you know, people will, will buy tickets and I set it up so, so you can pay whatever you want. So like as little as 10 cents, you can be a part of the show and watch. So she watches from home when I do those, um, which is really cool because she gets to see me like and part of my element you know it's still like a hotel and it's the crappy hotel wi-fi but it you know it ends up working out but uh actually um i show her a lot of songs because she's four and she has like a really great memory and really good instincts as far as you know kids don't have a filter so they don't know what's cool or what's not cool you know as you guys know but it's like so i showed her that uh that that carly ray jepson song call me maybe (laughs) right so I show her Call Me Maybe because I'm really interested in what she's going to say because it's like a cute little pop song. But uh, I show it to her and she said, this is cheesy. I don't know about this. This is cheesy. She's pretty funny. <laughs> it's, so, it's funny how uh, the filter thing with kids because my daughter Kate has – unbeknownst to all of us because we don't it's not like we're not saying no we are but it's just not a big deal but no just kind of became part of her vernacular oh yeah you know Mm. and cheesy from a four-year-old blows my mind that that (laughs) that she knows that that's something she knows the context of what it is like she could say to you that's cheesy you know what that means and and how you should either alter it or maybe you want it to feel that way but uh that kills me well, she so said it, and because like I'm like a total geek on that song, I think, yeah, it's like a great pop song, and I, you know, I enjoy the craft, and, and and like it's super catchy and everything. But like to see, like her instincts, like she listens to like the girl songs on Arcade Fire, like those are her favorite songs that she asks for, yeah, the Tegan and Sarah stuff, and like she's like, she's got really good taste. But then she started singing the song a couple days later, and she only heard it once. The Call Me Maybe song. She starts singing it, and, and then I asked her, wait, but hon, I thought you thought that that was a cheesy song. And then she said, well, I like cheese. <laughs> <laughs> and she sings it, and it's, yeah. it's super cute, man. It's Maybe you want to bounce your, your songs off of her and get some hooks. I have, I have. Yeah. We, we, we wrote a couple songs together, actually. One is called Briefcase Brown, which describes my hair color and my eyes. Nice. She said that they were briefcase brown, <laughs> which wow. blew my fucking mind. So I had to write that down. And then 
Smelly Belly Button was another one oh, that we did. Was that also inspired by you? <laughs> Indeed. Right on. No. <laughs> Gotta clean that shit, yeah. Nah. <laughs> yeah. She does a, like a rap part, you know, so no, thank God she does not. She, she doesn't really, she's not really uh, exposed to, to rap music. It's hard. Well, yeah, yeah. So when did she get the cell phone? That's what I want to know. Oh, it, it, if it were up to me, like not till high school, but I know how how unrealistic that's going to be. Do kids in middle school have yes, must have cell phones? Totally. Yeah. Cell phones, iPods, like both. They have both. Uh, some. Well, I have a uh, um, younger siblings who are just now starting high school. Okay. And it's crazy to see all of the shit, like all of the shit that 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 they have, and like it's just normal. To have that shit now, yeah, I don't know. It's like, how, how could you like a smartphone in class? Like, how much cheating do you think actually? Oh, goes totally. On? I remember just with those like TI eighty five calculators, you could type in the equation, and I was like, I'm cheating the system. Like, I have like, like what am I pro- doing? Yeah. Or like those those one kids that would have the calculator, but then on the inside of the sleeve, they would have like a cheat sheet. Like, totally, totally. And I was just like, I want Brad. T- you remember that calculator watch? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. Cheat sheet. I knew a guy who could, uh, he's now a teacher, but he put an entire quarter's worth of French on his finger. What? Taped it. Oh my God. And he, and he would just sit like this, holding, as I'm demonstrating on a podcast, Rhodes Scholar. He would sit here with like <laughs> his, his index finger in front of his middle finger and just have that there. That's... And then I knew a dude with long hair in high school. I had it, but it was called a mullet, so it was only partially long. <laughs> I knew to do with long hair and a skater ahead of the curve. Uh, he would tape answers in his hair. Oh, like on the inside? On the inside his... and then kind of like tuck his finger behind his ear oh, and bring it forward. A good teacher would, would catch that one. Totally. Yeah. Well, there's... It's kind of amateur hour, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. A little bit. That seems tough. Yeah, but the, the, uh, the finger one, that, finger that actually... That's pretty brilliant. That impressed me. But how much can you really fit? But what also amazed me is he took a lot of time to do that. When I <laughs> I just studied it. Actually, I was very comfortable with failing when I was in high school. Yeah. To the point of, ah, I mean, really, trig? Like, come on. I was the opposite, man. And I was right. You're a cheater? No, no. Like, like failure was certainly, like a B was not an option oh, with right. my parents. Like, no way. Yeah. My parents wanted it a certain <laughs> respect. But I also went to one of those high schools where, um, and maybe this is more common now, or maybe it was uh, just where I lived, it was a pain in the ass. But wasn't 90 to 100 as an A? 94 to 100 was an A. Oh, damn. Oh, wow. And that really annoyed me because I remember in high school arguing, going, okay, wait a minute. So my GPA is a 3-3. But if I was going to school in two counties over, yeah. I would have straight A's. So fuck you. Yeah. So now I'm not going to do any of it and not go to the college that I want. I win. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I felt like I was lucky because I have a sister who's close to me in age and she had always had straight A's and I if I got like an a B or something it was like a huge my parents were like let's go out to dinner like, like awesome. it was, so it worked out actually good because it was kind of expected of her but if I did it it yeah, was you had like some flex room yeah it's good to have that yeah yeah, yeah totally. for sure man <laughs> Absolutely. I swear that they put that kind of you know ambition and pressure on your sister and, and you know <laughs> it's a shame she didn't do well I know it's too bad <laughs> uh, for those of you playing the home game Jonah's sister is on Saturday Night Live so Really? Yes. 
Wow, that's and awesome. Been, and you might know her because she's been a guest on this podcast. Oh, I'm that sure too. Yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> like, now we're talking. I mean, I, I, I don't know what the, that whole S, is it SML? I think so. It's going to be huge. Yeah. NWA. <laughs> NWA. <laughs> There you go, William Beckett. Uh, Winds will change out in July. Right now, please grab it. His EPs are good. He's just a good songwriter overall. But here's what's fascinating about William Beckett. Uh, we all knew he was tall, so you kind of assume basketball. Did not know that he was such a sports enthusiast. Thing I'm most shocked by: um, inline inline skating, rollerblading. I just don't. Yeah, I had a pair. I tried it. I right. thought it'd be the guy, but uh, after you know going down a hill on my ass and my face, stopped. Kind of like I've done everything in my life. Once it got hard, I quit doing it. You know what's interesting about inline skates is I feel like when I was growing up, they were this super masculine thing because it was like hockey. It was like street hockey. Like oh, yeah. everyone. Oh, yeah. And then I felt like over the years, it became sort of more and more not as, I don't know, I guess everyone moved down to ice skates or it was something. embraced by the gay community. And then, yes. And then it was downright. Well, so. Come on. I <laughs> My confession is I actually had a pair of inline skates that were given to me at one point. When This was when I was still in the band, in the Goops, and uh, I <clears throat> embraced them. <laughs> <laughs> I thought there was nothing more punk rock than having wheels on my feet. And uh, so... <laughs> Please tell this me this is, is where okay. I think it's heading. <laughs> anyway, I thought they were pretty cool. I thought they were fun. I was still skating at the time, like skateboarding. And as you know, the two do not meet, so... I kept a pretty low profile in uh, Manhattan. Um, then I moved to L.A. <laughs> and I, uh, I needed a workout routine. I wasn't going to the gym. And I wanted to do something just to keep my cardio up. <laughs> so I found this route that went down. I went into Griffith Park. And I, I actually measured it one day. And it was pretty substantial. It was like an eight-mile run. And... A, thir- a good third of that was uphill. So it was a serious workout. I mean, when I was doing this, I was, I've was i never been in better shape than I was when I was doing this rollerblade fucking thing. Wow. <laughs> but <clears throat> it kind of went through some back streets. I lived in Los Feliz. I would go through these back streets, up into the park, come back, never run into, have to run into anybody, right? Except for the day that Fur was playing in town. And Fur was another band on Blackout. Holly Ramos was the singer. She was a good friend. And <laughs> so I'm skating through these back roads in L.A. And Holly, a convertible pulls up and it's Holly and like the rest of the band and Phil Caviano, who like is one of the most he's very hardcore punk rock. He is probably best known for being uh, playing in Monster Magnet. But he's done a bunch of like the the he's been in like New York hardcore bands. He's a real he's a man's man on the scene. <laughs> and so I not only was on rollerblades, but I was wearing like some pretty low slung like army pants and no shirt. Yeah. And there Bleach. they were. They're like, Brad moved to LA and that's what happened to him. He turned into that guy. Bleach blonde hair. And there was so nothing I could do at the point. I mean, I literally had been caught with the dick in my mouth. <laughs> and I was just, I'm like, yeah, this is my workout, dude. How you guys doing? You playing tonight? <laughs> and I think Phil, who, you know, I'd known Phil for a while. And I think he, 
he thought I was a little bit more of a man's man than what I was showing. And you've never talked since? No. We you had to literally have... kill and eat a bear in front of him <laughs> to do it. But, uh, yeah. Do you still have the skates? Embarrassing. No. Okay. Fair I kind of wish I did. They were fun. It's <laughs> like mopeds and fat girls, dude. <laughs> <laughs> this is a good segue to point out that the music on our show is by the Goops. Brad's band. Uh, Brad also produces everything. And uh, Jonah and I booked the show by uh, dialing people up on our phone. So we got William to come in. Actually, William came to us. He, he hit me up on Twitter, which was pretty damn cool. Nice. Uh, William's a good guy. Grab his EPs that are out. And uh, you will listen to us next week on another stellar episode of Going Off Track. And I say stellar because the Rubber Track Studio is a satellite. Yeah.